And if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 33. It was brought to my attention that these, these passages are all very Christmassy. So then I was thinking, I wonder if I could drag this section out to the end of December. And I don't see I'm going to be able to pull that off. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, here now the word of God. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Certainly, Father, this message, even though we tend to focus on it during the Christmas season, is a message that is profound at any time that we would engage it. We do pray, Father that by your spirit we would help to understand, you would help us to understand the nature of this encounter between Gabriel and Mary, what it means, what promises are being kept here, and how we should respond to such things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you probably know, the Bible is made up into two major sections. We generally call these two sections the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. The Old Testament is prior to the birth of Christ. Uh, it ends about 400 years before the birth of Christ. And the New Testament begins with the birth of Christ. It really, as we saw, begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, but it begins with the announcement of Christ's ministry. Augustine is often cited as the source of how these two testaments work together, how the Old and New work together, and he said this, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I think the heart of Augustine's words revolve around Christ himself. In a certain sense, Christ is concealed in the Old Testament. We learn of Christ in ways that are not immediately obvious. But according to Jesus himself, those 39 books of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, are about him. You search the scriptures, Jesus said in John 5, 39, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. A movie came out a number of years ago called Saving Mr. Banks. It was about the making of Mary Poppins. 
you know, and I saw Mary Poppins when it came out in movie theaters when I was about nine years old and have watched it since because I have four children maybe 50 times. But, in, but in, that, in that movie, you learn something about the making of the movie. This is not a spoiler alert because it's in the title of the movie, Saving Mr. Banks. There's this argument between you know, Walt Disney and uh, the writer of Mary Poppins, I forget her name, Jay, somebody knows. What's that? Travers, Travers right. Travers. They're arguing, and, and, and Disney mentions how she sent this magical nanny, as it were, to save the children. And uh, Travers gets all upset because she's given her book to Disney, who at the time didn't ruin things the way they do today. And, and disgusted, she says, you think that Mary Poppins came to save the children? The point is, as the, as the, as the name of the movie indicates, that, that Mary Poppins came to save the dad. Now it made me want to watch the movie over again. Like, how well did they pick up on the idea that she came to save the dad? Well, when Jesus said, the Old, the Old Testament's about me, I need to reread the Old Testament with that in mind. If I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm not finding Christ in the Old Testament, I'm reading it incorrectly. Both Testaments, the Old and the New, contain the same message. Yet, the Old Testament books were written before Jesus was born. So the testimony, when he says, these books testify of me, are found in things like prophecies. The testimony is given prophetically, sometimes allegorically, sometimes through narratives, through stories, sometimes poetically, like Psalms and Proverbs, sometimes through types, what they call it, a type, like the lamb. The sacrificial lamb was a type of Christ. Remember John the Baptist will say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those who knew the Old Testament knew exactly what he was talking about. His lambs were sacrificed. Sometimes we see in the Old Testament foreshadows like priests that teach us about our ultimate high priest who is Christ. And then the sacraments, the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, which all typified Christ. The message of Jesus goes all the way back to the dawn of man. There are many people say, oh, you believe in Christianity, but that came 2,000 years ago. How, what about other religions that are older? There is no religion, if you will, older than the Christian faith. The gospel was first proclaimed at the dawn of man, directly after the fall. When it was just Adam and Eve, the gospel, they call it the proto-evangelium, is declared Interestingly enough, it's first declared to the serpent. We read in Genesis 3.15, he's talking here to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I just want to point out here that may not be immediately obvious, and that is there's a whole lot of bruising going on. 
this promise of deliverance, this, this gospel message contains a lot of bruising on both sides. Two parties getting bruised. Now, the seed of the woman you have on one side and the seed of the serpent you have on the other. I think in a very, in a very broad sense, it can be said that this is the general battle that we see throughout the course of history between good and evil. There is a broad battle taking place, and there's good and there's evil, and both sides are going to find themselves bruised. Yet, in a very specific sense, in a very individual sense, the two parties in this prophecy are Jesus and Satan. They are both, in a sense, fathers. The devil is the father of what? Lies. So in a sense, he's the father. And all the evil things that, you know, that come through and accompany lies. Jesus, and this is not to confuse our understanding of the Trinity, but Jesus is referred to in Isaiah 9-6 as the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So he's not the father in a Trinitarian sense, but he is the father in terms of the kingdom of God. And even though there are bruises, and by bruises we're talking about casualties, pain on both sides, the prophecy clearly has good, or specifically Christ, victorious over evil or Satan. You see, one bruise is to the heel. Where's the other bruise? To the head. I mean, you can, you can hit my heel with a jackhammer, right? You could, do, you could do almost anything to my heel, and it's not going to kill me. You take that same jackhammer to my head. Well, you can do the math. It would be through the death of Christ, which I would argue is a strike of his heel, that we would see the death of the devil, which would be the strike of his head. This prophecy in Genesis 3, as well as other prophecies pointing to Christ, would require a sacrifice, would require a death. That would be the bruise to the heel. God loves us, but it is impossible for God to die. Therefore, that sacrifice, that death, is not something God the Father could do because God can't die. So what does he do? He prepares, Hebrew says, a body for his son. And that son would die. And it would be through his death that he would conquer death. We read in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same thing, right? We're flesh and blood. Jesus came, how? Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It would be through death that Jesus would destroy the one who has the power of death. You guys know the story of David and Goliath, right? You know, we always think about him hitting, you know, Goliath in the head, with a stone, but then what did he do? He took Goliath's own sword, not to get overly graphic, but it is in the Bible, 
and cuts his head off. It would be through the weaponry of the evil one that the evil one himself would be put to death. He had the power of death, but it would be through the death of Christ that the one who had the power of death would be put to death. All this to say that what we're reading of here in this early portion of Luke is the beginning of God keeping that promise that we read all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That promise to fix, if I could put it that way, through Christ, that which was broken through Adam. God made a promise, and Luke is recording, our Lord is keeping his promise. But let me tell you, just in case you thought it was going to be green lights and blue skies all the way, that promise does not come without some bruising. And keep this in mind, ultimately it was Christ who suffered the bruise. But you know what he said to us? He said, kind of expect to be treated the way that I was treated. So we should not have this Pollyanna attitude toward the Christian faith that there's not going to be bruising casualties and difficulties taking place. Matter of fact, it's promised. Now we're going to read here in the sixth month, it's probably the sixth month of, of Elizabeth's pregnancy with, with John the Baptist, but we'll read it. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So now we are introduced for the first time to Mary. Now the significance of her virginity uh, we're going to deal with in a later sermon because it's really kind of dialed in in verses 34 and 35. So we'll leave that alone for now. We'll get to that in another message. Right now I'd like us to appreciate the humble means by which God is restoring the broken world. He's starting very small. He's starting very humble. That which by any metric would be viewed as insignificant. Gabriel goes to really what amounts to an unimpressive city, Nazareth. We know it. It's important to us now, but at the time it wasn't. To an unimpressive young lady. Now, I don't mean to speak. I'm sure that Mary, as we're going to learn when we go over the Magnificat, was a well-catechized young lady. So I'm not, I'm not kind of demoting her, but there was nothing about Mary. She wasn't somebody who had kind of climbed the social ladder, the spiritual ladder, the religious ladder. She was unknown. I don't think we should view it as false humility when Mary speaks of her own lowly state. I think she's being honest. She very much had a, who am I, to, to, you know, to receive this this honor from God. So Gabriel's going to an unimpressive city to talk to a relatively insignificant person, and he does mention that they're of the house of David. Well, that's kind of a big deal, but it wasn't really, because now they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So being of the house of David had lost its luster. If you were during, you know, in the Old Testament, you were related to David, that was a big deal. But now, it's like people who go to like Genealogy.com, you ever do that? I haven't done that, but to find out if you're related to some great explorer, some dignitary, and you're like, hey, no way, I, my ancestors came over on the Mayflower. Or, 
or whatever, you know. And you know, you know what, what does that do for you? It's something to talk about at a dinner party. There's a city in Italy called Vigiano. Maybe I'm like the king or something. Maybe there's money there waiting for me. I, I don't doubt that Mary was somebody that we all would view as impressive. I mean, I, I feel that way about many of the young men and women in our own church. I mean, I'm like, there are just light years ahead of where I was at their age. I don't doubt that she falls into that category. At the same time, I think we need to resist placing her in a category that I'm sure would make her recoil. Now, since this is our introduction to Mary, there's a big part of me that wants to engage in a full-scale Mariology. I mean, there's a thing called Mariology, right, where you study Mary and all the errors produced by the church, mainly the Roman Catholic Church, regarding this woman. I'm not going to jump into all that, but I do feel a responsibility to at least say something. For now, I'm going to restrain myself to just a few things. One is, there is no hint in Scripture of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. You've heard this term, the Immaculate Conception? A lot of Christians think it's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is a teaching that, Jesus, that, that Mary was conceived free from the effects of original sin. It's the sinlessness of, of Mary. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates anything like that. As a matter of fact, when we get to the Magnificat, she's going to refer to God, her Savior. Look, at if you don't have sin, you don't need a Savior. Well, I, you know, Roman Catholic apologists will have something to say about that, but at, at least at face value, it doesn't seem to work. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible the bodily assumption of Mary, this idea that, that when she died, in some he will even say, if she ever actually died, that her body underwent no decay but was assumed directly into heaven. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Neither will one find the coronation of Mary as the queen of heaven. This is another Roman Catholic doctrine. That, she has, that when Jesus did bring her up to heaven without her body, under, body undergoing decay, she was, there was a coronation. And she became the queen of heaven. By that, it means that she is somebody who is the mother of all the children of God, that she has the fullness of royal power in that office, and that she is somebody that we actually should pray to, which is a common Roman Catholic exercise, right? The Hail, what is it? The Hail Mary. You don't find anything like that in the Bible. It's all, it's not only is it church doctrine, apart from biblical doctrine, what I'm talking about here, and I'll get to, I think I got one more before we move on. All of this is fairly modern, even in the Roman Catholic Church. You don't find these things during the Reformation. In the Reformation, you found indulgences taking place, those types of things. But what I just mentioned to you, all these things are really something that came up in the last 150, 200 years in the Roman Catholic Church. Fairly modern doctrines. And finally, and there's other things too, you know, the perpetual virginity of Mary, but Jesus, Jesus had brothers and sisters, and so you got to kind of deal and wade through all of that. But the other one is the mediatrics of all graces, and that is that she is like the, 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 the co-redeemer. Later on in this chapter, 
when she's hearing this message, she's going to make this comment. Let it be according to your word. Like, so she's hearing the message of Gabriel. Unlike, you know, Zacharias, she's more on board. Remember, Zacharias was like, wait a minute. She's like, let it be according to your word. And the, that doctrine that she is a co-redeemer comes from the fact that they are saying that had she said no there, it would never have happened. So when she said yes, she became part of the work of redemption. And again, I think that requires a real contorting of Scripture in order for God to be going, hey, are you on board? Because if you're not on board, we're going to have to leave everybody in their sin. I don't think that's what's going on in that dialogue. That Mary is called to rejoice as a highly favored one who is blessed among women. These are pretty nice phrases, right? But they, that, those things should not springboard us into viewing her as superhuman. I, I dare say the same thing could probably be said for other people. These blessings, and I think it's important for all of us to understand this, these blessings are not founded upon her superiority over other women, but on the good pleasure of God. God bestows blessings upon whom he will. You can read that in Romans 9. He gives grace to whom he will. I know that we as creatures don't like that. Who does he think he is? I mean, it is funny. We have that phrase, right? When we say, who do you think you are, God? When somebody does something that is kind of beyond the scope of their authority. Because we have this assumption that if they were God, they could. So when God says, I'm going to bestow my graces upon who I want to bestow my graces, this creaturely part of us goes, who do you think you are? But that is a clear biblical teaching, that he has pleasure on whom he will have pleasure. He bestows his grace upon whom, and nobody can question him. Similar to the, uh, the righteous, you know, when Jesus talks about Judgment Day, and he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And uh, the response of the righteous, remember the response of the righteous? They're like, when did we do that? I don't remember doing that. Mary seems, Mary's response isn't like, you picked the right person. I've been working toward this. I'm, I'm glad you finally figured out. Your eyes have been opened or whatever. She seems perplexed, right? She's like, What? Matthew Henry said, not conscious to herself of anything that either merited or promised such great things. Well, you know, interesting thing that we see in that reference on Judgment Day when they're like going, I don't remember doing all this great stuff. Mary's response is like kind of this, you know, I'm lowly. Why, why am I part of such a great thing? I think it's, it's notable that those who have found favor in God's eyes are not generally aware of it, and they certainly don't think they deserve it. You know, we all, you know, and I saw a lot of head nodding, but I feel like if we really got that, our, our families, 
our relationships, our church, if we really understood that at the deepest level, that would alleviate a lot of problems that are wafting around even in this room. If we really understood what we deserved, if we understood the depth of it, it changes everything. If we really lived our lives in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that I deserve this, but I got that, it would just change everything. I know when I'm driving and I make a mistake, and somebody honks at me or does whatever people do when you make a mistake driving, I'm all into like, hey, man, be patient, be tolerant. We're all just driving. We make little mistakes, no big deal. But when somebody does that to me, I'm all into justice. Where's a cop? You know? <laughs> Verses 29 and 30. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It might also be pointed out here that Mary, though she had found favor with God, was in for a rough ride. Those two often go together, in case you hadn't noticed. Simeon is soon going to inform her that her soul is going to be pierced when it comes to the events and ministry of that child. We see both of these going on. Simeon is going, you know, he didn't put it this way, but there will be some bruising taking place. And it's not going to be easy for you, Mary. Because, you know, Jesus, I mean, Mary was probably a teenager. So, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, Mary was like, she might not even have been 50. So she's still a relatively young person experiencing this. Nobody wants to see their child go through this. But the strength, and I pray this is true for everybody in this room, the strength that Mary will find and the difficulties that are going to come before her come from the knowledge that she has found favor from above and not from abroad. Mary was so unlike many of her contemporaries that we read in John 12, 43, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The difficulties that Christians go through are going to be difficulties. What keeps us from despair, not grief, grief is part of it. Jesus experienced grief. What keeps us from despair is the knowledge that by the grace of God, we have found favor in his eyes. When God says, look it, I, I've got you, you're mine, every single day, every single moment, and when you die, you're going to immediately be with me. If we really get that, we really understand that, then the path that we're taking right now is one that is so much more endurable. Verses 31 through 33, and behold, you will conceive in your womb... And bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Well, right, we had Zacharias and Elizabeth, you know, Mary and Joseph, and now we are finally introduced to the central figure of all of Scripture, the central figure of all that is, both in history and eternity, we are introduced to the Son, who shall be named Jesus. That name means Jehovah saves. And normally in Jewish cultures, the father names the child. Gabriel is telling Mary what the child will be named. So Jesus is named by his father, but his father in heaven. And let me just tell you, all the spotlights and crosshairs in the course of history and eternity are now turned toward Christ. Everything turns toward Christ. We'll get into this, right? The angels and the wise, everybody is kind of going, this is it. The cameras, they don't zoom in on Mary. The cameras, they don't zoom in on John the Baptist or anyone else. Those who would seek to take rank with Christ or were forced by others to try to take rank with Christ, whether they wanted it, like James and John, hey, can we sit with you next to you on the, on the throne? You got a place for us up there? Or others, like John the Baptist, are like going, no, John, you need to be kind of the big man. All of those people who would get into that spotlight or seek to be into that spotlight are forced into, into that frame would find themselves in one of two camps. One, they would declare their own worthiness. God had so opened their eyes that they realized they don't belong in that spotlight like John the Baptist. Jesus declared John the Baptist to be the finest person born of a woman. That's a pretty nice compliment. John the Baptist viewed himself as unworthy to loose the sandal strap of Jesus. Do we have that attitude? I, sometimes I hear, when I was a youth pastor, we used to sing the song, we're never going to sing it here. Jesus is a friend, he's a friend next to you. Jesus is a friend, so sing. That song is wrong in so many ways. But, you know, it's built upon when Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Do you ever notice that none of the apostles ever refer to themselves that way? Paul doesn't write, Paul, a friend of Jesus. And so the fact that he would condescend to call us friends doesn't mean that we're like contemporaries. So that's one where your eyes are so open that you're like going, I don't, I just don't even belong in the same company. Or two, you're providentially cast into the sidelines as with the apostles when the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. Right? Peter thought, I'm going with you all the way, didn't he? And he pulled that out, he pulled that knife out, and he's like, I'm ready to do battle. And I have to hand it to him, right? He, called out, he cut off Malchus's ear. That, that's a death sentence, man. You know, Peter, you've got to admire the courage of that. I always think that when Jesus picks the ear up and puts it back on, that if I'm a Roman soldier, I'm about to change sides. <laughs> so he's got the courage to do that, but when it, but when it got closer to the cross... We are told by Scripture 
that Peter would, would, didn't even want to be associated, right? He would deny him and deny him and deny him. There was something very dark about the cross, and God providentially made sure nobody was there except for Jesus and the two criminals. Now, whatever Gabriel means here by great, he will be great, it cannot be compared to any sort of greatness observed or achieved by the creature or the creation, right? We, we have that term, right, the goat. Because when I was a kid, the goat meant you were, like, not very good. Now it's the greatest of all time, right? And everybody wants to argue who the goat is. Whatever, whatever Gabriel is saying here, it's not that kind of great. I always find it off-putting when the face of a man or a woman is placed in the town square as the hope of its citizens. I think it's a really dangerous precedent to set. You put the guy's face up there and you're just like, here's our hope. I think it can easily be argued that the welfare of any nation, you talk about greatness, right? We want some greatness here. We want a great leader. I think it can easily be argued that the greatness of any nation any family, or any church is best built upon the words that John the Baptist will say later, and that is, he must increase, but I must decrease. You want a good church? You want a good family? You want a good nation? That needs to happen. That's the answer. That's the answer to the problem. Whatever, whatever's happening among the creatures, that needs to decrease. My faith in mankind needs to decrease, and my faith in Christ needs to increase. There's so much said in these three verses, but I'm going to distill it for the sake of time. But let me just kind of hit on these so we could build on it at another time. First, his very name, as I said, means Jehovah saves, is at the heart of this volcano of erupting renewal. You know, I mean, I put it that way because the renewal is not going to be something silent. It's going to be an eruption. In a very broad sense, it is said that Jesus was sent, and Jason quoted this, by the Father to save the world, right? I think that speaks to the, the cosmic effects of the ultimate victory. It's a changed world. He came to change the world. He came to save the world. That doesn't mean every single person in the world, but it does talk about the entire world is going to be affected by what Jesus is going to do here. But we have to understand this. Big things, like a changed world, are a result of many little things, like a changed you and a changed me. There are no big things. Big things are just a compilation of a lot of little things. So each one of us has to ask ourselves this question. His name means Jehovah saved. Has he saved you? We, I talked earlier about being in this community, right? But when it, comes to, to, when it comes to judgment day, it's going to be, did you believe in what your community was actually professing? Did you believe it? Because Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me workers of iniquity, even if you had great ministerial success. Do you believe that he died for you? Did he come and save you? Do you believe? Because if you don't believe, and you're just here listening to stories in the Bible, 
as a mere curiosity, that mere curiosity in history is going to turn into eternal tragedy on the day that you stand before the living God. That is at the heart of this redemption. Second, he will be called the son of the highest. But aren't we all sons and daughters of the highest? If I were to ask you, are you a child of God? I hope you would say yes. Are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? You'd say yes. But not in the same sense that Jesus is the son of God. We are all child, children of God by adoption. He's adopted us. We rebelled. In Adam, we were all strangers. We're all aliens. We're not part of the family of God. And by faith, God adopts us. And he makes us his own. But Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, we read in John 1.14. Now you might go, all right, all right. I go with that. Seems harmless enough on its face. But here's something we have to understand in terms of the bruising. That becomes the epithet. That phrase, son of God, becomes that little magnet that draws the ire of man. We read in John 19, 7, the Jews, and here they're talking to Pilate, you know, at the trial, answered him, answered Pilate, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the son of God. So whatever Son of God means, it's not the same way our adoption into the family of God is. Matter of fact, what we'll read late another time, not this morning, is that when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he assigned Godhood to himself. Third, and finally, he's given the throne of David. The throne of David is a massive and much repeated prophecy promise that we see in the Old Testament. It is there a lot. And sadly, it has also become a matter of some controversy. A thousand years before the events recorded in Luke took place, King David is given this promise. And again, I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to read the one so we understand what the promise is. Sam, 2 Samuel 7, 13, 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers... I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. There we see, by the way, the seed again, right? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So somehow the throne of David becomes a type of the kingdom of God. And like I said, it's repeated over and over. So I want to finish this morning asking and answering two questions. What is this throne of David, and when did Jesus take it? When did this happen? So David's given a promise. It's repeated over and over and over again. From your seed, you know, from your lineage, there will be this Messiah, this Savior, and he's going to sit on your throne, but of course it's going to be a bigger throne than your throne. When did that happen, and what does it even mean? First question first. When did that happen? Because this is a big controversy. No. We read in Acts 2, and I, because, it, because it's controversial, 
I'm going to have it up here so you can read it. And then you can tell me when it happened. Right? God had sworn with an oath to him. And by him, and we could go back and read. But the him is David. Right? God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. See how this is a fulfillment of the promise I just read? To sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning what? The resurrection of Christ. So when did Jesus sit on the throne of David? According to this verse. The resurrection. Really, the resurrection and the ascension. Or the right hand of the Father. The efforts, I'm going to tell you, it's a little, I find it a little frustrating. I went to a seminary. I went to a number of seminaries, but one of them were like, yeah, that, we got to read this in a certain way because he's clearly not now on the throne of David. The efforts made primarily by a theological brand called dispensationalism, and you can ask me about that during Q&A if you'd like. To take this clear teaching of Scripture and deny its force is discouraging, to say the least, and destructive, to say more. In order for that system to work, you know what they do? They create multiple thrones. There's the throne of David, there's the Father's throne, there's the throne in Zion, there's the throne in heaven. It's like, it's like musical thrones. Like you're going from throne to th what throne is he on now? That, that is taking a system and forcing the Bible to work within your system. I'm going to resist at this point bringing forth all the passages in the New Testament, declaring this, that Jesus is currently, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, currently at his Father's right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Jesus is currently, this shouldn't be controversial. He is currently the king of kings and lord of lords. He's not in escrow. And I, I mentioned that because in a debate I had with a guy who believed, the, I'm like, well, do you think Jesus is currently the king of kings and lord of lords? And his answer basically was, well, it's, it's like escrow. And I'm like, are there realtors in the room that can explain the escrow process? But the answer was really, no, not really. But it's a for sure promise, and he's going to take that throne at the second coming. That is not found in the text. That is an imposition upon the text. He currently, Jesus currently has all authority, where? <laughs> I said it during the baptism, right? In heaven and on the earth. I don't know. I don't see any place left out. That seems like every place. Whatever the throne is he's on, it's the throne over everything. In heaven and on the earth. So that answers our second question. The throne is something he already sits on. And it's a declaration, it's a symbol of absolute authority over everything.
he mentions the house of Jacob here, and it's just a way of saying that the church, the Christian church, was first established among the people of Israel. That's where it started, the Jew first. But then, as Calvin taught, that would subdue the whole world. Let us appreciate the magnitude of this promise recited by Gabriel. Because brothers and sisters, if you, by faith, are part of this kingdom, you are part of a kingdom that will never end. It will merely transition from militant to victorious. It will transition from history to eternity. Your last breath on earth, if I could put it this way, will be followed by your first breath in heaven. You, You close your eyes here and you open them there. You're part of the same kingdom, but you will know the full consummation, the full beauty, the full glory of a kingdom you're already part of right now. Now we see it like through a veil, like through a mirror, dimly. But there'll be a time when our eyes are open to see what we're actually part of. Let us also appreciate that this great promise is made in the context of slavish and humble circumstances. Let us realize that when this was written, nobody knew who Mary was. Nobody knew who John the Baptist was. Nobody knew who Jesus was. And it didn't seem like anything good was going to come out of this community. Does anything ever good? As if God wanted to make a point that humanity had been reduced to a stump. Isaiah 11. And from that stump, there would be new branches and flowers. Now, I'm going to finish with this. It's very difficult to know if the following excerpt from a sermon given in July of 1926 by this pastor named James Allen Francis has become worn out from use. I don't know. You know me well enough to know there are certain corny things in our culture, religious corny things that I don't like. I don't like the footprints thing. This is in our culture, though, and I have to say, I think it beautifully expresses the transition from humble to superabundant. So I'm going to read it, and we'll finish with this. So this was a sermon this guy gave, and this was pulled out of that sermon about 100 years ago. He's talking about Jesus, and he writes, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. This might be my favorite line. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today... He is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth 
as much as that one solitary life. Let us pray. (coughs) Father in heaven, we do pray that we would appreciate just the greatness of this kingdom that started as a mustard seed, and even now we see it growing throughout the world. Help us to rejoice that we are part of this kingdom that will never end, and help us, Father, to live a life in such a way as to advance it, that that gospel may ever go forth, and that your name may be glorified in all the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.